And let's pray. Father, we do thank you for your word. We believe, as always, it is true and living. It is your word. You've spoken to us, not leaving us scrambling around uh, blind on this world, trying to determine on our own what is true. You've spoken. And your word is life to us, and it is truth. We need both of those to be realities for us today. So we ask, as we always do, that you would speak, Lord, your word by your spirit through your servant to your people for your glory and for our good. Lord, would you move me out of the way and use uh, my weary voice as an instrument to speak your truth and life to your people. In Jesus' name, amen. And I am a little froggy uh, today. I love fall. Fall doesn't always love me back. And uh, it's very, very early. It's not even fall yet, but something is blooming and uh, blowing in the wind. Got me just a little bit froggy, so I apologize for that. But there's, a, there's a poem by Robert Frost called A Cow in Apple Time. And I'm not going to read that poem to you right now. Um, but but it, it begins... Uh, something like something inspires the only cow of late to think no more of a wall than an open gate and to think no more of wall builders than fools and it goes on to say essentially that the cow here uh, is noticing that on the other side of the wall there are apples because it's apple time and the apples fall into the ground the wind fallen apples that look to her more appealing than the withering grass in the pasture. And so she transgresses the wall in some way. I don't think the poem tells us how. And goes and overindulges on apples. Some of them presumably, you know, rotting. Some of them worm-eaten. But tasty enough to her that she eats until she's sick and the, and the poem, it's a very short poem, actually concludes by saying um, that her milk runs dry. So I don't know uh, all of what Robert Frost intended in that poem, but the wall was there for her protection, not for her punishment. Right? That grazing within the pasture would empower her to fulfill her purpose. I mean, because I don't know if she's a milk cow or just might have had young little babies to nurse, but either way, dried up milk on a milk cow is not worth much. And transgressing those boundaries that were established for her, although momentarily pleasurable, um, actually worked to her destruction. Now, the reason I thought of that uh, in connection with this message is because as I sort of alluded to when we started this series on the Ten Commandments a couple of weeks ago, modern man scoffs at the very idea of moral boundaries and thinks of moral wall builders as fools very much the way that this cow does in that poem. That who are you to say what I can and cannot do, ought to or ought not to do? That's very much the mindset of modern man. By the way, it's been the mindset of man all down through the centuries. 
And as I suggested uh, at the opening sermon in this series, it, it is in some ways uh, more and more a mindset of those even in the professing church. But the second commandment, uh, like uh, the rest of God's moral law, is for our good. His law is for our protection, not for our punishment. The boundaries that he establishes for us are good for us. And that's why I've titled the message, Don't Worship God in Your Own Way. You may have heard the phrase often that we're often sometimes invited. Worship God in your own way. My suggestion is don't worship God in your own way. Now, I'll I'll admit this is a little bit of a teaser. This is on the internet. This would be like clickbait, you know, they call it, just to get you to click on the the rest of the sermon to listen. Uh, What I will say and won't say about that, and we'll come back around at the the conclusion to say there's a sense in which uh, there's great freedom in our worship, and we are invited to worship in a very personal way. Um, and yet not in a boundless way. So let's begin by observing here just plainly and simply what the commandment says in the text of Scripture and then where that leads us from here. So what is it that's commanded or forbidden? Well, it's essentially two-part, a two-part commandment. You shall not make for yourself an image, right? A graven image, carved image, the likeness of any living thing. And number two, you shall not bow down and worship them. So there's a prohibition against the image itself. There's a prohibition against worship of the image. And why? What's the reason given there in the text? That, well, the Lord is a jealous God, not envious. We think of jealousy as being a vice, not a virtue, a bad thing for a person to have, not a good thing. He's not envious in that sense, but protective of the covenant love relationship that he has with his people. And resolutely intent on preserving it. And it says he, he uh, is a jealous God who visits the iniquity of the fathers on the third and fourth generation. I'm not going to spend a lot of time, uh, actually much time at all, on uh, this particular aspect of the, of the text here. just wanted to uh, sort of touch it and move on. But it doesn't visit the iniquity upon future generations in an unjust way. You'll notice, in fact, it says, the third and fourth generation of those who hate me. So it's not like uh, the later generations have no way of sort of wiggling out of this. But it does say, it tells us something important. That there are at least two things that are true about the visitation of our sin, our iniquity on future generations. Number one... There's a sense in which the father's rebellion becomes the rebellion of the children and grandchildren and great-grandchildren. And that's really probably the best way of understanding what's written right here. Is that the third and fourth generation of people who, if you rebel against me, if you despise me, uh, that will be visited upon uh, your your grandchildren and great-grandchildren, those who hate me. That is, our rebellion very often becomes the rebellion of our children, grandchildren, and great-grandchildren. And, and secondly, that the consequences of our rebellion against God very often have impact on our children and grandchildren and great-grandchildren. Now, we could stop right there and share testimony of how that's true, right? We could bemoan that fact, and we're not going to live under regret of that, by the way. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, right? The law of the Spirit has set us free. 
Um, but it is to say, like, this, this is the reality, that, it, that there's not just some arbitrary and unjust, you know, wielding of a hammer against future generations that, that the Bible speaks to. It just is to say that our sinful decisions reverberate in the lives of future generations, okay? But we'll come back uh, sort of to the larger points here. Let me just state up front here the essence of the commandment. I said in our opening um, message on the first commandment a couple weeks ago that uh, one, of the, one of the principles that guides us here is that uh, the, the commandments, the, the, the law of God reveals something about his character. And as Jesus tells us, there's always more to it there than meets the eye, right? That, that, that if you only look at the surface externals of the commandment, you've probably missed the larger point. And he says the issue is in the heart, right? Um, not what comes out of the heart. So the essence of the commandment, uh, I'm going to state up front and then look at some incidents that sort of prove the point, and then we'll look at how do we obey that today. But here it, here it is. If I say nothing clearly the rest of the morning, if you'll just write these two points down and you explore them on your own, surely by the grace of God, it'll be meaningful to you in some way. Uh, so it's two-part <coughs> essence to the commandment. Number one, worship God as he has revealed himself, not as you imagine him. Worship God as he has revealed himself, not as you imagine him. Number two, worship God in the way he commands, not in the way that you desire. Worship God in the way he commands, not in the way you desire. Okay, that's what is commanded, I'm going to suggest, in uh, the second commandment. And I think the, the... demonstration of that, the proof of that, or illustration of that is found in the scriptures itself. So the Ten Commandments are given in the context of uh, pagan nations that surround them, right, in every direction. They have come out of Egypt, a polytheistic uh, nation of its, in its own right, into this different kind of polytheistic uh, nation. They're surrounded by false worship. And that's part of what is so um, distinct and, and almost inconceivable that there's only one God who would command worship exclusively of him in that setting. And there are numerous scriptures that speak to that, where, whereas they're going um, into the land, he says, don't go after their gods. And by the way, don't worship me the way that they worship their gods. There are a number of places that it says that, but two of the most overt and egregious violations of the second commandment are uh, involve golden calves. So if you've been a student of the Bible, there are probably there's at least one of those that comes to mind probably immediately. Um, there's, there's a second as well. One's found in Exodus 32, the other in 1 Kings 12. And you don't have to turn there right now. You can write down those references and maybe uh, look them up later this afternoon or uh, some other time this week. You're certainly welcome to turn there. But I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go in a real abbreviated fashion here um, to, to, again, to highlight how these, these two instances of golden calves are violations of the second commandment and tell us something more about what it is that God has forbidden and required in the second commandment, okay? So the first in Exodus 32, it's really a continuation of this event right here. Uh, God has come down to the mountain uh, to speak to the people. Moses goes up to him and he's going to receive 
uh, besides the Ten Commandments, some additional laws, some uh, regulations or, or, or uh, design guidelines on how the tabernacle is to be built and all that kind of stuff is happening uh, in, in the, the chapters that follow chapter 20, okay, between 20 and 32. It's this continuation of the same event that while he's up there, uh, the people get a little antsy and impatient. And so they came to Aaron and they said, you know, we're not sure what's happened to Moses, but here's what they, here's what they insist Aaron do. Make us gods who shall go before us. I don't know if this Moses guy is coming back. So you make us gods that'll go before us as they've come out of Egypt. Aaron melted their jewelry, made it into a golden calf, which is astonishing considering they've just been told not to do such things, but some of the things you and I do are pretty astonishing too uh, if we have objective eyes to see it. But then the people said, here again, this is you can see this in Exodus 32. The people said, these are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. No, they weren't. And in response, Aaron made an altar and said, tomorrow shall be a feast to the Lord, Yahweh. That the, 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 the proper name of God there. Tomorrow shall be a feast to Jehovah. Well, suffice it to say, God was displeased. It did not go well for Israel after that. You can read that part of the story as well. That's the first instance there. The others in 1 Kings chapter 12, verses 25 through 33. And it's a strikingly similar incident, but with very different motivation. Jeroboam um, had led a rebellion of 10 of the 12 tribes who had followed him uh, from Jerusalem into the sort of the north country. It becomes the northern tribe of Israel, the other two tribes, the southern tribe of Judah. But he was afraid that if the people went down to Jerusalem to worship, they'd stay there and they'd no longer be loyal to him. So he created worship that was more appealing to them and it was more convenient to them. They didn't really seem to know the difference anyway. But like the people in Exodus 32, they presumed to be worshiping the same God, the God who led them out of Egypt. The right God, in other words, in their minds. But Jeroboam did it in a way uh, that involved uh, worship in high places that he made. Uh, and then scripture emphasizes this, by the way, all the things that he made, he made, he made. You go look it up in First, First Kings chapter 12. And on a date, they came together on a date that he devised in his own heart, it says. Mediated by priests that he just decided would be suitable for administering this worship from all of the tribes rather than simply the tribes of the Levites. Now the significance of that, of course, is that that's all, that was all devised in his own heart. He just made it up. Really for his own benefit. But in both cases, I, mean, I want to come back here to the, the two points I made before about the, the nature, the essence of the commandment. That, that, that the commandment involves uh, insisting that we worship God as, we, as he's revealed himself and not as we imagine him. Because in both cases here of these golden calves, their intention was to worship 
Jehovah. They believed they were worshiping the same God who brought them out of Egypt. That's what the text says. But they're imagining him as a calf. And the, uh, the, 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 the word there, uh, the Hebrew word, one scholar suggests it means a young bull in his first strength. Okay, so it's, it's a young bull when he's just getting, you know, a little bit of gusto in him, you know. Now, whatever, whatever honor or virtue they intended to ascribe to him, to God, by representing him as a calf falls terribly short of the honor actually due to him. Would you agree with that? Whatever honor, what, however they thought they were, they thought they're worshiping the right God. And they're making an image of him that they think honors him in some way. And by the way, bulls and heifers and those kinds of things were commonly objects of worship in uh, Egypt and in you know, Canaan and that part of the world. But it fell far short of honor in him. And so, so, so part of what we want to grasp here is that God has said a lot about himself in the scriptures. But he has not said everything that is true of him. Okay? Because the infinite cannot be contained in finite human language, in human categories of thought. You understand? Theologians speak of that as being the incomprehensibility of God. We can know God. We just can't know him fully. Okay? So he's told us everything we need to know, but not everything that could be known about him. What that means is that every image that man would create as a representation of God is limiting limits God in an insulting way. I mean, to an insulting degree. Whatever image you would come up with limits him. So in other words, it's, it's not even primarily about the image itself or even necessarily what the image represents. The issue is what the image fails to represent. However you want to depict him, fails to depict him accurately and fully. And it's true whether they're physical images or mental images, and I'll come back to that in just a moment. But that's, that's the related to the command to worship God the way he reveals himself. The second point was worship God in the way he commands, not the way you desire. So one involves God himself how we think about him. The other is our worship of him. In both, both golden calf incidents, the people's worship seems to be genuine, right? But this is, this is really important for us. Again, I probably can't say it right. I probably can't say it with enough enthusiasm to get you stirred up to get it or whatever. But uh, this is really important for us because we live in a day and age where the, the, uh, the sincerity of your heart is somehow the, the chief and governing principle of everything about worship and our relationship to God in the minds of some people. They seem to be genuine, even joyful in their worship, but they miss the mark terribly. And there turn out in both cases to be grave consequences for them, if you want to study that later. But, but it's interesting because there is a curious desire in the heart of people to worship created things 
or, or at least to use created things to aid us in our worship. Um, so I don't know if that's because it's just accessible to us, relatable to us. We understand them. They're tangible. I, maybe it's because in some cases we're in control of them. It's a little bit ironic, you know, that people who worship idols in that way, it's a little bit like playing dolls. You know, whatever, whatever the doll does is what the child tells the doll to do and makes the doll do. And these gods that people worship, they are what the worshiper makes them to be. They're in control of him. But whatever, whatever it is, uh, it's insufficient in, in right worship of God because part of what worship does is, is leads us somewhere. It points us somewhere. We are heading in a direction. In the Old Testament, all that's revealed about the law and even worship is all pointing toward Jesus that'll be the fulfillment of it. Right? The, the law was a schoolmaster, a tutor to lead us to Christ. It's all pointing to him. And even right now, our worship of God and our relationship with Jesus points us to a future day when we will know as we are known, right? When we will, when we will see him more fully um, as we can't possibly see him now. It's worship is heading somewhere. And so when, when, we, when we start in the wrong place, um, then we're by definition headed in the wrong direction. Well, so, so let's sort of land the plane here. How do we obey the second commandment then today? With that in view, how do we obey the second commandment? Because one of the things I did mention, and I'll, uh, I'll say here again um, uh, momentarily, we, we want to be sure that sort of we, we hold up front, that we sort of dra- pull up off of the bottom of the sediment or whatever in our own hearts, the, the fact that uh, the law points us to Christ. Okay, that one of the purposes of the law for the New Testament believer is that it points us to Christ, the grace we find in him, and in whatever sense he fulfills the law. But listen, we are not under the law. Whatever relevance it has to us, we don't under, we're not under the law. The law leads us, but it doesn't lay on top of us. If you find yourself underneath it, you're doing it wrong. You understand what I mean? We're oppressed by it somehow. Rather than led to liberty by it, something's not right. So how do we obey the second command? How do we worship God as he's revealed himself and in the way that he's commanded? I want to suggest four ways, and there may be more of uh, more than this. But number one, keep worship Christ-centered. Keep worship Christ-centered. I read Colossians 1.15 as our call to worship, which says, He is the image of the invisible God. Don't make for yourself graven images. Jesus is the image of the invisible God. Uh, Hebrews 1 um, says that, you know, in times past, he spoke through the prophets. 
But in these days, he has spoken to us through his son. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. You see him, you've seen me, God says. His glory is my glory. He is the image of the invisible God. The Old Testament points us to the New Testament. So we want to, as a church, dwell in the New Testament. We, we, we understand uh, the Old Testament as it's illuminated by the New, not the other way around. We read the Old Testament looking back through the lens of the New Testament because of what Jesus has made known to us. Because there's all kinds of things, and you've probably experienced it before. Um, people can, churches sometimes can, can, can get camped out in, in places in the Old Testament, make much of what this Hebrew words here mean and the numbers and the dates and, you know, all kinds of things that can just be a deviation down a road of its own. And you can go all kinds of fascinating places that are all the wrong places if they're not pointing back to Jesus. Keep worship Christ-centered. Number two, avoid the use of images to inspire your worship. Avoid the use of images to inspire your worship. I would not lay um, any of this down as law itself unnecessarily. Certainly, I would say don't make any carved images and bow down to worship him. I could tell you that one with great confidence. But I would say just avoid images for reasons that I mentioned before. That would include images of Jesus. Uh, there's nothing particularly, again, inherently sacrilegious about him or idolatrous, I would say. Um, but, but, but it's interesting to note that there's, of all that's been said about Jesus, there is not a description of him physically. Except in his glorified appearance at the transfiguration, if you remember that story, and after his resurrection. So that, he, that even his human appearance sort of veils something that's true of his glory. And, and you've noticed, perhaps, I mean, I'm not sure what Jesus looked like. I'm just pretty sure he didn't look like most of the paintings I've seen of Jesus. Right? I mean, you see, you see paintings of Jesus. He's got, you know, long, sandy blonde hair and blue eyes. Looks like a French woman with a beard or something. You know? And see, and, he, and here's the thing, I mean, in, in truth, I mean, those very often down through the centuries, people have done that kind of thing to make him relatable to people. Like to say, Jesus is your Jesus. But again, the issue is not, is, is not necessarily the image itself. It's, it's all that the image is not, right? It's not what it represents. It's what it fails to represent. And people get through images um, at least inadequate notions in their head of who Jesus is or who the triune God is. I'd say uh, avoid them. Uh, I would also include in that mental images of God. So however you, you picture him in your mind, however you would picture him in your mind, you're limiting him. So I would say you may have heard, sometimes people say, close your eyes and picture God as dot, dot, dot. I would say don't. 
Uh, don't picture him as a father sitting in the recliner wrapping his arms around you. Don't picture him as a king seated on a throne. Don't picture him as a perfect husband who loves you the way you deserve to be loved. And even though he's revealed himself in those terms, right? He, he describes himself that way. He is father and husband to the, to the uh, widow. He is king. He's lord and master, a great shepherd, creator, mighty warrior. But he's not merely any one of those things. And whatever picture, what, however you picture him in your head, is God as merely one thing at that time. That that, that that becomes the object of your worship. And it's likely to develop your worship along sort of aberrant lines. Avoid images to inspire your worship. Number three is, let's just put to death personal desires and demands about worship. I would, I would have appreciated more amens to that one, you know. I'm kidding. Don't, don't do it now because it just wouldn't even, be, it wouldn't even be sincere. I would know your heart's not in it. <laughs> put, put to death personal desires and demands about worship. Uh, when, when worship services are designed to appeal um, to, to consumer demands, so to speak, of worshipers, it, it, it leads astray from the very get-go. And eventually, uh, we'll wander into outright idolatry. And again, now, now go back and look so that this doesn't seem like I'm, I'm, I'm stretching this one too far, okay? That's exactly what happened in 1 Kings chapter 12 with Jeroboam. He designed worship that was appealing to them to, to keep them loyal to, loyal to him. It was convenient, easy kind of, you know. Uh, and, and, and like I said, it leads at least to outright idolatry. There were two illustrations of this this week that were just st- staggering. Uh, one at a, a so-called seminary, um, which has, I mean, from the outset, I think, never really embraced the truth of the scriptures, the Christian uh, tradition, or the gospel, but and why people pay money to go there, I have no idea. But anyway, a seminary that, that, that put out on Twitter a photo of one of their chapel services where their students are confessing their sins to plants. That happened this week. Let me go back and read Romans 1. 26, or sorry, not 26, but probably 18 to uh, 25. If you don't worship the creator, you will worship a created thing. It is guaranteed. If you don't worship the creator as he's revealed himself, you will end up worshiping a created thing. And I don't know all of what their intention was there. It doesn't really matter. I mean, they missed it bad on that one. There was another story this week of an apostate church that probably gets their ministers from that seminary. (laughs) And I'm actually not even making that up. Like, that's probably true. Just knowing the relationship between them. Uh, This church, during an art festival in their community, displayed in their sanctuary a sculpture of a pagan god 
from Eastern, the, uh, a, a god of war from Eastern Europe, from like the ninth century or something like that. A, a sculpture, literally a carved image of a false god that they displayed in their sanctuary. Now, in their, uh, they would say in their own defense, they, it wasn't an object of worship. They didn't do, you know, whatever. They weren't worshiping the thing, whatever. Again, I think that's so far afield. Like, it doesn't really matter. That part doesn't really matter, you know. But, but really, my point in sharing that is to say, that's way downstream from where anybody in this room is, I think. Um, but if you, if you do not worship God as he's revealed and in the way that he's revealed he ought to be worshipped if you don't worship the creator as he is you end up worshipping created things so uh, number four is let our public worship of God be conducted in the way he is sanctioned in the new covenant let our public worship uh, be conducted in the way he's sanctioned in the new covenant this would be real similar to uh, what I said let our, let our worship be Christ centered That'll keep you real centered. Like, if you focus on Jesus, that, that's going to keep you real centered a lot of the time. Um, but in particular, uh, worship centers on the reading and preaching of scriptures, singing psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, administering and receiving sacraments, praying and giving thanks, giving tithes and offerings. There's a reason why that's what a worship service looks like here in, in just about every Protestant church you would go to, historically. Is that that's what the scripture says, that, that the, as the Old Testament is fulfilled in Christ, as patterns of worship set, a, you know, set out in the Old Testament that point to the new, uh, that are fulfilled there. That's, that's the kind of worship that is sanctioned for uh, the church, those things centered on reading, singing the word, administering sacraments, praying, giving offerings, and so forth. But in other words... Look to the scripture to guide on how we worship God. Let's, let's, let's certainly set aside, just put to utter death the notion that our sincerity matters uh, foremost or primarily in any respect. The genuineness of our worship is not uh, the best or clearest measure of whether or not our worship is well-targeted. You following me to check in with me there? Does that make sense? Just put that to rest altogether. Because we will, we will, like others in the scriptures even, give ourselves more liberty than the Bible gives us. You know, when we say, I don't think such and such really matters to God, it's amazing how that always works out to our benefit. <laughs> it's always the easier route, the more convenient route, the more comfortable route is always what results from that. Now, so here's what I'll say coming back to the, even the title of the sermon. Don't worship God in your own way. Well, I don't mean that absolutely because within the boundaries, even that I just concluded with, within the boundaries established by Scripture, there's great freedom. In fact, a great caution uh, about tying that around your neck too tight. If you become rigid and, and, and restrained and highly prescriptive in worship, um, that, that leads to a whole different kind of error, right? And some of us have lived that one before. 
burdened by whether or not you're doing it just right. And then, and then all the sincerity and genuineness leaves you all together. So, so we're, we're back to that uh, Robert Frost poem and the cow in the, in the pasture. There is this vast, vast pasture that God has given us to graze in within the boundaries that he's established. Great freedom in worship about what we sing and how we sing. Do we sing with lifted hands, with our heads bowed, on our knees or laying prostrate on the floor? Yes, all of those things. You understand? Is it appropriate for somebody to be praying while another person's singing? Yes. In those respects, we might be invited to worship at any given time in our own way. But to define for ourselves, prescribe for ourselves, how our worship can be uh, conducted entirely as if there are no boundaries established by God, nothing sanctioned by Him, and it's all a matter of if we are worshiping the right God from our hearts. The second commandment says otherwise. The Scripture's illustrations of how the second commandment is violated say otherwise, and that ought to matter to us deeply. Well, let's close in prayer. Father, you know our hearts better even than we do. And uh, Lord, we would say, even, uh, even had, having considered or being challenged by the fact that the sincerity of our heart um, isn't of first importance, we know that it is of great importance. to worship you in spirit and in truth, that you look on the heart and not on the outward appearance. And we could stack up many uh, verses that support that truth as well. So Lord, would you help us even now examine our own hearts to see more clearly the authenticity of what we bring before you even today. And Lord, we ask that you would show us in very concrete, specific ways how our worship of you needs to be bounded. We believe that there is power operating freely inside the boundaries that you've given us, that it's there that you empower us to discover our greatest purpose and not just any old place we define for ourselves. Lord, would you show each one of us how our own worship of you needs to be um, adjusted or even magnified and amplified because of what you've said to be true about yourself and about worship of you. So Lord, I just pray you'd minister by your spirit uh, the truth of this passage of scripture according to every need here. Lord, grow us in our love for you uh, deepen our relationship 
heighten, Lord, the exaltation we make of you in our worship. For Christ's sake, amen.